Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. We are so quarantined with my co-founder on air, Mr. Jeff Gant. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. Hey, if this is the first time you're tuning with us uh, on YouTube, make sure you hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. We are pumping out five to six videos a week of a bunch of different content, so make sure you follow along. Um, also, Follow me on Twitter at Focus Compound. That is typically the best place to get all the content that we push out. Um, so in today's video and podcast, Chef, I think we're going to do something that I don't think anyone has ever done a podcast on. And it is going through Warren Buffett's marked up 10K of Lehman Brothers. And he's told this story often when he's talked about Lehman Brothers, how when he was going through the 10K, what he did was he would write down page numbers of every single page that you know kind of left a question mark over his head. And he said by the time he got to the end of it, there was a lot of different page numbers, which um, you know was part of the reason he passed on the on the stock. And I thought it'd be fun to sort of try reverse engineering it as best as we possibly can okay. to um, you know just go through it see if we could, you know, see what, um, you know, he maybe was looking at and see if we could get anything out of it. I don't want to make this a two hour long podcast, but we will just, uh, try to spend some time deciphering it and looking through, um, you know, what he was looking at and we'll see where we go. So it looks like he went from this way to there. So we'll start at uh, page 106. And I think he means the printed page, not the actual like 10K page. Right. Uh, so let's go to 106. So we'll go down. We this are, is already a long 10K, you can tell, right? It's about the file's about 270 pages, which is very long for a 10K anyway. Yeah. And I'm going to share this 10K. So if you're watching on YouTube and you want to follow along yourself, uh, check the about section of the show notes. And then if you want, if you're listening on the podcast side, I'm also going to tweet it out uh, when I tweet this uh, podcast out. So it will be in there. So this is um, page 106. Let's see if I could. Uh, can you see on your end, Jeff, the screen? Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. So uh, this is the MDNA section. And I wonder what left him um, you know, a bit puzzled after reading this. And it looks like uh, they go over the high yield instruments. They say we underwrite, syndicate, invest in, and make markets in high yield corporate debt securities and loans. And they go on uh, to define what they believe is high yield instruments, which it sounds like uh, anything that's rated BB plus or lower. Um, let's see what else. And then they, you know, list their exposure to these bonds and talk about the credit risk. Um, uh, I mean, I would, my only guess is that they went up two and a half times in one year. Yeah, that's what I was about to go over. It says increase in high yield positions from 2006 to 2007 is primarily from funded lending commitments that have not been syndicated. Right. That's a huge concern. So, so break that down. what does that mean? Well, I think what it means uh, without uh, reading more of this is that they uh, are hold were holding stuff on their own balance sheet that was originally intended to be put off onto other people. So uh, that's why it ballooned like that. So basically, it's like your inventory building up because you can't move it. Um, that would be my guess is what that means. Yeah, look at high yield positions right here. It went from 12.8 billion to 30.3 billion in one year. Yeah, I mean, if we had more time, we could read all that and decide. But that would be my guess, that it went up that much and that the reason why is because they couldn't move it to um, other people fast enough. Uh -huh. I mean, there's nothing really else on this. Um, let's see. Private equity and other principal investments. Our private equity business operates in six major asset classes, merchant banking, real estate, venture capital, 
credit-related investments, private fund investments, and infrastructure. Um, let's see. In addition, we generally co-invest in the investments made by funds or make other non-fund-related direct investments. At November 30th, 2007 and 2006, our private equity-related investments totaled $4.2 billion and $2.1 billion. So it also doubled uh, for private equity as well. And it says the real estate industry represented the highest concentrations at 41% and 30%. Wow, so maybe that's what it was. Um, it sounds like the real estate investments went from 80 million in 2006 to 275 million in 2007. So I'm sure also that's something that scared uh, Mr. Buffett. So 107? What's that? So page 107? Yeah, yeah, we'll go to 107 right now. See, this is what I was kind of confused about. Maybe, I mean, maybe he really means well in seven, but it's just this. Uh, it says, uh, let's see, it's still part of the equity management. It says, we maintain a common stock repurchase program to manage our equity capital. In 2007, our board of directors authorized the repurchase subject uh, subject to market conditions of up to 100 million shares of holdings, common stock for the management of our equity capital, including offsetting dilution due to employee stock awards. This authorization superseded the stock repurchase program authorized in 2006. Our stock repurchase program is affected through, and then it cut off, oh, through open market purchases, as well as through employee transactions where employees tender shares of common stock to pay for the exercise price of stock options and the required tax withholding obligations upon option exercises and conversion of restricted stock units to freely tradable common stock. Uh, so I wonder what uh, scared him in that section, but maybe this is also part of it. Um, capital ratios, leverage ratios, looks like they just went through definitions. Um, any thoughts on this section? No, nothing. Um, so what do you see. have, page 112? Yeah, let's go down to 112. Look at them. How are you, are you, do you have this up right now? Do you have this up? No, I'm just telling you because I wrote down the pages he wrote. Oh, you wrote page. it down. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, why do you remember this? Okay. Um, uh, see, I don't understand right here. I don't know if it's like this part. Well, we can look at that. All right. Lending-related okay. commitments. Mm -hmm. um, the following table summarizes the contractual amounts of lending-related commitments at November 30th, 2007, 2006. And it's more on it going up, right? Leading commitments, high grade, high yield. Uh, looks like uh, it went from 17.9 billion to about 24 billion, and then the high yield went from it doubled from 7.5 to about 14 billion. Yeah, um, and it says in the footnote, uh, we view our net credit exposure for high yield after hedges to be what does it say about 13 billion? Yeah, 12.12 .12 billion if, and. Five billion yeah. at November. So it, it more than doubled. Yeah, in one year their net position, and it more than doubled. So he's probably just seeing. I mean, at this point that he's looking at it, right? He's looking at this company that's on the brink of bankruptcy, is crumbling, because that's exactly when he was looking at this business, and all he keeps seeing is that their exposure to high yield uh, investments has just been going crazy. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, let's see, let's go down to a hundred page, 115. All right. Uh, special purpose entities. That's probably, or it could be derivatives as well. Let's see. Why don't we, why don't we go over the derivatives section? Okay. Um, look at that. Their derivative okay. contracts went from 534 billion in 
to seven hundred seventy seven hundred thirty seven billion two thousand seven. Um, yeah, what did they have as their note? The fair value of it is that's the part that I think is more the issue. So in the footnote, it's very hard to tell on the without getting into all this. The, those look like very big numbers, but it's very hard to tell um, when they give information about derivatives about the total contractual amount. But if you look at the um, yeah, more than triple footnote. So the footnote says that they believe that their fair value in that part. So what it says is that the fair value of the derivatives contracts um, went to about 37 yeah, from 9 billion over one year. So it tripled. Yeah. So, so at I mean, this point, you think he's really looking at it and thinking, holy smokes, these guys just keep, you know, just throughout the year. I mean, they're just going crazy with it. I mean, what do you think he's thinking? Right. Because remember, he's coming at it from a position of this company needs help. They need to be bailed out. Okay. So put yourself in his shoes, right? You're Warren Buffett right now. You get this yeah. opportunity. I don't want to say on a silver platter, but with everything you know, right? And everything going on in the real estate market and the market in general, the economy. I mean, what do you think he's he's truly trying to think about? Is he thinking, okay, how can this company be solvent? I mean, what do you think he's thinking about? I mean, so far from what we've seen, I think what it is is um, that they have commitments for what they said in the earlier page is um, real estate. So we know what that is because we kind of know about the crisis and what happened. And then finance and insurance related things, um, all which probably could also be related to real estate stuff um, that they can't get off their balance sheet because other people won't take them. Um, I think that's what it is, is my guess. They, they couldn't have, I don't think they intended to have this much going on with how big it's grown as part of their balance sheet. I mean, we don't have, without going through the whole 10K, know how big their balance sheet grew overall, but the size of these increases is disproportionate to how fast your balance sheet would normally be growing. So oh, we could go through the balance sheet. You want to take a peek at it really quick? Sure. We can look at the balance sheet. Uh, I think I just passed it. Let's see. There we go. Okay. So that's changes to Yeah. So if we keep going up. They need two pages for their balance sheet. <laughs> yeah, so there we go. So that's the consolidated statement of financial condition. Yeah, that's what we need. Look at these collateralized so, agreements. Right. So the total assets only increased from about um, uh, – so they only increased there by – what is that? Uh, about a – that's a pretty big increase. Um, but it's still – I mean, we're talking disproportionately uh, a bigger increase in um, the items that he's concerned about, I guess. Um as you can see, there's not a big increase in things like cash and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. This I mean, insane. yeah. So, and I mean, we, we even get to the details about what kind of borrowing they have. But as you'd expect for an investment bank, if you look, the borrowings are either short term borrowings or um, like uh, repurchase agreements, which is how investment banks normally work. So, it's very, very short term stuff. So, if you add that up, um, those first two lines, basically. I mean, there's other stuff too There's that they've done, but I would say that a large amount of it is, uh, I mean, sorry, the second and the third lines. Um, so the financial instruments and other inventory positions sold, but not yet purchased and the securities. Yeah. So that part there. Yeah. So I don't know, that's half the balance sheet or something. So, but that's not unusual for an investment bank that he would know that, but um, so whatever it is, 50% or something of their balance sheet is financed by very, very short-term stuff. As you can see, the long-term borrowings are what only a fourth or less of the balance sheet, so that's unusual um, for for companies generally. It's not unusual for an investment bank, so they depend on being constantly refinanced. Um, so that having the confidence of you know Wall Street and stuff. Mm-hmm. And at this point, when 
you know, no one's going to be lending because everyone's going to him uh, for a, a bailout or an investment. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that was, you know, a huge reason. Okay, let's go to, let's see, was it 115? 115. Uh, we did, yeah, we didn't go over the special purpose entities. It says we enter into various transactions with special purpose entities, SPEs. SPEs may be corporations, trusts, or partnerships that are established for a limited purpose. There are two types of SPEs. It says Q SPEs and VIEs. Okay, well, we know what VIEs is, but let's go to the um, uh, next page to see more information on that. Okay, uh, structured investment vehicle. The one that's more concerning is the first paragraph. So I want to know what a QSPE is. It says a QSPE generally can be described as an entity whose permitted activities are limited to passively holding financial assets and distributing cash flows to investors based on preset terms. Our primary involvement with QSPEs relates to securitization transactions in which transferred assets, including mortgages, loans, receivables, and other financial assets are sold to an SPE that qualifies, what am I reading right now, as a QSPE under SFAS 140. So the last sentence is the concerning one. The last sentence says, we de-recognize financial assets transferred to QSPEs provided we have surrendered control over the assets. So potentially that's a way to mean that they can take things off of their balance sheet by doing this, right? De-recognizing uh, financial assets. So that we don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we do because we have hindsight now of what they might have been doing with these. But um, it, it's so it's a bucket that they can put things in and then they it's not actively controlled by them anymore, right? Um, so what does that do? That like takes off their balance sheet, but they're still exposed to it? Uh, well, it's an interesting question if they're still exposed to it. Uh, that gets complicated. I don't think you would know from just reading the 10K what that exactly means uh, if you're still exposed to it. Um, but I, it's not good to see this, I would say. I mean, we, uh, this is this is a so people ask about off-balance sheet things. This is the kind of off-balance sheet thing you don't really want to see because uh, they could be doing anything. Um so, I mean, that last sentence, de-recognizing financial assets transferred, provided we have surrounding control of the assets, is the really concerning line. So, um, yeah, uh, the, the, the other paragraph could also be a problem, too, but it makes a little more sense in that um, that's more of a normal thing for companies to have. Um, so... Uh, the, but yes, but even then, I mean, you know, you can go into it, they give examples of what it is and, you know, um, and some of this is just, this is how complicated investment banks are though. But yeah, they talk about their off balance sheet exposures underneath that too. So they talk about a structured investment vehicle. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at that right now. Um, let's see. In November 30th, 2007, we had approximately 75 million of balance sheet exposure representing the aggregate of a fully drawn liquidity loan to an SIV. Uh, it says we have entered into a derivative transaction to which SIVs are counterparties. The total notional amount of these derivative transactions was approximately $4.1 billion at November 30th, 2007. Um, yeah, so these are, again, kind of concerning for the, the third line is one. Uh, third bullet point where they talk about they have repo agreements where they have balance sheet exposure to commercial paper issued by them. So um, it's it's not a big item or anything, but so I mean, um, what does that mean? Uh, so um, they have exposure by buying commercial paper, so they're providing short-term financing to these things that are off their balance sheet, 
but they're the ones providing financing to it. Not that they're the only ones, I don't know. Um, but they're continually providing financing of 14 million, they say. I mean, also another concerning thing when you talk about commercial paper and stuff is you have to be a little careful because commercial paper could be 14 million today and you know 300 million tomorrow. Um, it depends on what the averages over time. At, at some companies and stuff, there's no commercial paper out during some days. And then at other times of the year, there's several hundred million or something. So um, it's a short-term constant financing thing that they have. So a lot of this is stuff that could fool or they could, they could be moving a lot of things around. What we're seeing in this page is they could be doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're taking things off their balance sheet. They're financing things that are off their balance sheet. They're not counting those assets as being part of their balance sheet. Why are they doing that? Uh, you know, we don't know. Um, you also saw in the derivatives things, which I can't evaluate. Derivatives are almost impossible to do this, but they mentioned that they have something where the um, uh, total notional amount is $4 billion, but they think their exposure is $50 million. So that depends on how good their hedges are and if they're correct about that kind of stuff. And so, you know, you're just going with whatever they say on that stuff. That's always a problem there. So they think they're almost fully hedged, but it's $4 billion. And that's mm-hmm. not on their balance sheet. Well, all right, let's go to page 125. Okay. All right, 125. So we'll just go with this page. Okay. Uh, Still in the MDNA section, talking about credit risk on derivatives. Okay, go through what they are. It says the fair value of our OTC derivative assets at November 30, yada, yada, uh, was $41.3 billion, up from $19.5 billion the year before. Uh, respectfully, however, we view our net credit exposure to have been $34.6 billion and $15.6 billion at November 30th, 2007 and 2006. What does that mean? What, what, is that, what does that mean we respectfully view? Like, what does that mean? Oh, respectfully, they mean for each year. So yeah, I, I know. I get that. But, like, why are they saying the fair value, but they're looking at it differently? Uh, so they think they're netting out certain things. So if you look at that first line there, uh, interest rate, currency, and credit default swaps and options, that line, if you move across all the way to the right, you'll see there's a huge net credit exposure. And that mainly what it's in, or I don't, I don't know exactly what you'd want to say, but the thing that sticks out to me is the OTC derivatives is such a big number, right? So that's not on an exchange. So what are those? Um, I don't know. I mean, OTC, I mean, Without more detail on it, OTC derivatives could be anything that they did with any other investment bank or something. I don't know what that is. So um, it's a big number. Mm-hmm. I wonder what Buffett was thinking when he was looking at this. Like, well, what- those are that second to last paragraph there, the fair value of the OTC derivatives. That's yeah. the one that stands out to me. Yeah. So, first of all, again, we see the ballooning of it where the net credit exposure more than doubles in a year. Um, and overwhelmingly it's, it has to do with the OTC derivatives. Um, yeah. So interesting. Uh, let's see. Like, like if you go up just, just to give an example, yeah. we don't know what any of these things are, but for instance, I have an, I, I mean, I don't know if I have an idea, but when you say foreign exchange forward contracts, so you say equity contracts, I have an idea of what you're talking about, right? So those numbers where they have the net credit exposure of equity contracts of, of $4 billion or whatever, or $2 billion in foreign exchange contracts, you know, those things I might have an idea of what they're talking about. But when you see the OTC derivatives one, I don't know what that is, and it's a very big number. Yeah, they don't even go into detail. Maybe they do somewhere else, but you would think that they would around here. They don't even provide a footnote on it. Yeah, it's odd. Um, interesting. 
Let's go to... And, and actually, if you go up a little bit, we can see a big change there. So if you go up to the... Uh, is, is it that? Maybe, let's see. So this one's the one you highlighted, right? Okay. Yeah. So you see that number that you highlighted. And then if you go down, you can see the earlier balance sheet for 2006, I believe. And look at the OTC derivatives there. Yeah. So that number, if you look for the OTC derivatives for um, what they entered into there, is you see um, some pretty big changes. I mean, if you go up again, just so we can see, doubled. So watch that column. You can see that it, yeah, it more than doubled. And in particular, you saw some pretty big jumps in certain numbers here, like we saw in um, interest. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty big jump. So. All right. Oh, see. if you go up a little bit again, let's see what that is. So they talk about their net credit exposures. Yeah. Yeah. So analysis credit exposures for the OTC contract. So they do go into detail on that. So if you look what they're in, um, hmm. So this is the interesting part here. So these are extremely highly rated uh, securities, as you can see, the percentages that they're in. So if you look, the, their um, their net credit exposures are in very highly rated uh, securities. Uh, if you look, the stuff that's in like junk is barely anything. Um, and we now know what that stuff was, you know, related to housing stuff that was all packaged together and rated at higher ratings than you'd get for, you know, smaller um, for individual mortgages and stuff. But anyway, that's just standing out there. Mm -hmm. Let's see. One to 20, oh, we got to go all the way down actually to 173. Everything he marked up was not even on like uh, the balance sheet, cash flow statement, or income statement. It was all the other stuff. I know the, foot, the footnotes, technically, these are footnotes, and the yeah. footnotes are where most of the interesting stuff is that you, that uh -huh. you look at. Yeah. Because well, what did that consolidated balance sheet tell us? For an investment bank or something, it tells you nothing. Yeah. Putting that all together, one thing, it doesn't. It does not helpful at all. You don't know what that is. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, so this is a revenue breakdown by geographic region. It says we organize our operations into three geographic regions: Europe and the Middle East, inclusive of our operations uh, in Russia. I think Russia it's the next page. Yeah, there's nothing. So it's. Oh, I think. Okay. Yeah, I think he just did like that. Um, net revenues presented by geography. Blah 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 blah. Okay. I guess this is going to be note three. So the bottom, that's okay. where I think we're going to see the issue, yeah. All so right. if we look at note three, um, this is going to give us financial instruments and other inventory positions. So that's the part that's interesting. So we have the owned section here um, and the, and the um, other inventory positions sold but not yet purchased. I actually don't know uh, what that is without reading more about how they account for things like that. But let's just go with the own for now um, as opposed to the sold but not yet purchased. Um so if we look at that, we see the mortgage and asset-backed securities have increased by quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so their inventory has gone up by, uh, what is that, $32 billion, um, whereas government and agencies is down, right? Corporate debt's up a little bit, and corporate equities is up a bit too. Real estate held for sale is also up by a sh really big amount. I don't know what that's all about. Um, and then we have the derivatives, which we talked about before. So we have big increases in, in terms of inventory, in terms of mortgage and, and uh, asset-backed securities, and in terms of these OTC uh, derivatives, whatever that is. And then here, we're also seeing something about real estate health for sale, which I don't know what that is. And you got to remember, too, again, when he was looking at this, 
when you know they were looking for a bailout, real estate was getting smoked, right? So that this was all common knowledge. So if you're looking at a business that has a ton of, um, I guess you could say, skin in the game towards you know mortgages and real estate, um, you know it's easy to get scared by all that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what thirty five. Uh, let's see, notes consolidated financial statements. Okay, so here we are. Uh, in 2007, 2006, our, our portfolio, US Prime residential mortgages, uh, a component of our mortgage and asset backed securities inventory were. And it looks like it went from six point eight billion in two thousand six down to five point two billion in yeah. two thousand seven. So it's interesting. Oh, I mean here it, we go. They have real estate held for sale. So okay. they do explain what it is. So um, it reflects our investment in parcels of land and related physical property. Real estate help for sale. We consolidate those in and you know, consider ourselves to have economic exposure to the total ongoing assets and the entities, excluding the amounts that have been consolidated, but for which we do not consider ourselves to have economic exposure. It's 12.8. Hmm. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, do, did you think their exposure to subbrine did? Subprime, did it go down because they were like packaging off their balance sheet? So one thing I was thinking about is I don't know what they were doing with the derivatives. So there's a ton of derivatives. Yeah. Right. And I, I'm somewhat confused by this because as I was looking at things earlier, were they doing things where they're trying to hedge their own inventory um, exposure of things? Um, I don't know what they were doing. I don't remember enough about the details of what uh, Lehman was doing at the end of if they were trying to change things so that they were betting against stuff that they had owned previously. Um, but there's uh, there's a bunch of stuff I don't understand about this. Real estate held for sale, I don't understand. I read that paragraph and I don't really understand what that means. I don't understand what the OTC derivatives are that they've been talking about either. And those two things are pretty big items, surprisingly big changes um, in terms of what they grew. And yet you see that obviously their exposure, some, not exposure, but their subprime things that you saw earlier is... Uh, it's not very big there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, but, but, but it's kind of, it's so cool. Like after we know what happened, you know, it's like we're we're looking at history right now. It's interesting <laughs> to see uh, the pages that he marked up. And for everyone, I have actually have well, this. Let me. There I is, have this screenshot so people can see. That's all I have. Uh, I know what pages. What were you gonna say? There's an interesting footnote at the bottom here where they talk about how they generally define the subprime, right? Yeah. Having six hundred twenty or lower using uh, FICO scores. And give details about that. Are you reading? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it's basically people who have low credit scores or second liens. All right. Let's go to 180. All right. All right. 180 level three gains and losses, fair value on reoccurring basis. Uh, let's see what else he has. Okay. So they're going to. So like fair value accounting of their assets. Right. So this is something that people will see in, in, um, 10 case and stuff a lot. And we talked about, we talked about this a little bit with Burford, for instance. So this is your level one, your level two and your level three. And so if we go up to the definition, you can get some more details on that a little bit higher. You'll see that level one's not gonna be that important here. Level two is going to be more important. And um, level two inputs they talk about um, are, uh, let's see. So they talk about correlation with market data, the measurement date are generally included in this category. Um, Okay. So you, uh, and then we level have level three reflects the management's estimate, the best right. estimate of, of the asset. So level one, basically there's a real market for it and where it's, we can think of it more like a mark to market sort of situation. Level two, there's some information about it outside the firm 
like a market for it that they're using. Level three is they're they're just basically using a model that tells them what it is. We that's sort of what we can say. Level one market, level three model, level two is in between. Um, so let's see what they have here in this table. Mm-hmm. It looks like uh, most of it's uh, 176 billion is level two marketing, or I'm sorry, level two fair value. Uh, so it's mortgage and asset <laughs> securities. Government. This is the be- yeah, this is the best part. If you look at that first line, <laughs> yeah, I know. So mortgage so and le- asset backed securities. Level one, <laughs> level one is. <laughs> Is nothing. <laughs> is a fraction of one percent of the total uh, yeah. that they have. So a ninety-nine point some percent <laughs> of it is either level two or level three. Look at this. Look at the. Oh, so that's that's where the assets are and the liabilities. My bad. I thought they were comparing year to year. I was like, what the heck happened? Why was there such a jump up? But no, that that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I wonder. I mean, even forty-one point nine billion is them just pretty much giving their best judgment you know right yeah and and we didn't talk about like how much equity they have and all that but these are fairly big numbers compared to the actual amount of equity in the firm yeah uh-huh uh this footnote says uh derivative assets are presented on a net basis by level uh inter and intra level cash collateral cross product and counterparty netting at approximately 39 billion yeah, the other thing that's complicated here is if you read footnote number one, and they keep saying this a bunch of times, and I don't understand exactly how to evaluate this. But what they talk about is that there's securitization, and then after that securitization uh, vehicle that they use with it, they believe that they don't consider themselves to have economic exposure to the underlying assets, and they've said that a couple times before. Um, so, why is that? Um, like, why do they believe that? Well, it's not consolidated. It's not part of their um, company. So uh, they talk about that. So let's see. They're secured financing under the sales rule. I mean, how do they even look at this down here? Yeah. Level three gains and losses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Net revenues, both realized and unrealized for level three financial instruments are a component of principal transactions in the consolidated statement of income. Net realized gains associated with level three financial instruments were approximately $1.3 billion for the the fiscal year ended November 30th, 2007. The net unrealized loss on level three non-derivative financial instruments was approximately $2.5 billion for the fiscal year. November 30th, 2007. That's a weird way of putting it. (laughs) So it's like net, you're at a loss, but I get it because you realize a gain, but you have unrealized losses, uh, primarily consisting of unrealized losses from mortgage and asset-backed positions. The net unrealized gain on level three derivative financial. Let's see. Instruments were approximately $1.6 billion for the fiscal year ended November 30th, 2007. It's weird. This would be very complicated to look at. I mean, even if you didn't, I mean, look, we know because we have hindsight what happened, but even looking at it, don't you think you'd be like kind of just like, like this is very complicated? I mean, I was reading your um, your write up on, uh, how do you pronounce it? Is it uh, MIDD? What's that company called again? Middleby, I guess. Yeah, Middleby. Middleby. I, I didn't want to butcher it, but I was reading that and you were talking about the debt and why you don't like it and it may return well, um, but that's really on a leveraged basis and stuff. So I wonder what you would think if you're looking at this with clear eyes, not knowing what was eventually going to happen um, to the business. Oh, well, 
I mean, we there's some stuff that's pretty obvious without that. I mean, if we just go to um, the balance sheet, for instance, if we just go to the balance sheet, we can do some numbers and see some stuff that's uh, interesting about it. So, um, you know, we don't know the details of how, okay, so if we look, right, we would see um, some of the stuff that's notable, okay? So one of the things that it's notable um, is just that number that you highlighted there, which is their total assets. So their total assets went up 37%. Their, their balance sheet grew 37% in one year. Um, if we go up further there too, we could see, um, there we go. So that's their earnings there. Um, okay, their revenue, uh, it's total revenues, got it, okay. Okay, so um, if we go down a little bit to the balance sheet again, sorry. Um, you'll see that, yeah, if you keep going further, we have, yeah, there we go. So the things that stand out as concerning, right, are that you have, obviously, as of the um, day of this balance sheet, you have, um, uh, they're leveraged about 30 to 1, okay? So now this gets complicated because, you know, I talked about how highly leveraged like Farmer Mac was or something. And there's arguments being made that they're not really that highly leveraged and that it's safe for them to be that highly leveraged. And it has to do with things about what um, assets they have and also to some extent how safe the liabilities are that they have. Um, however, the increase in the um, balance sheet is a, a pretty big deal there. And you'll also notice something else, which is interesting, which is that um, – and this is something to point out too. When companies go bankrupt and stuff, not just financial services companies and stuff, but there's a tendency for people to think that companies shrink and shrink and shrink and then they go broke. What happens a lot more than people might think, that investors might think, is that companies grow while their business deteriorates. And that's actually what's happening. Um, so if we look, we'll see that over the last year, they had added um, about, what is that, $187 million in assets while they added about, um, let's see, so they had 187 million assets. And then if you could go down so I could see the second half of the balance sheet. Yeah. And they, um, at the same time, yeah. So in addition to the fact that they are leveraged about 30 to 1, uh, they actually uh, incrementally their leverage was 60 to one. So they added about $60 in assets for every $1 in equity they added over the last year. Um, Are you doing math? Uh, yeah, so I was saying that they added about $60, $60 in uh, assets for every $1 in um, equity that they added over that one year. Uh, so their leverage 30 to one at the end point there for that year, but they actually increased their, their assets quite a bit faster than they increased, increased their equity. Um, Which is your point on, you know, companies rapidly growing before they bust. I mean, people talk, I mean, Dick Fold thinks that, um, you know, the Fed should have saved them, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, do you, do you think that they should have saved Lehman? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if saving an investment bank. I mean, I, I think their intention was to save Lehman. I mean, they, they couldn't get the deal done because they couldn't get uh, approval from the British government. But I think that their intention was to save Lehman, yeah. Um, let's see. We went over the fair value accounting. Let's go to 184. All right. Um, fair value. Okay, so we're back at that. 
Secured borrowings, deposit liabilities at banks, certain hybrid financial instruments, long-term borrowings, short-term borrowings, fair value on a non-recurring basis. You see anything here that jumps out at you? Yeah, keep going down. Let's see how that paragraph ends up. Uh, yeah, keep going. So it's still on the valuation. Yeah, so... Um, Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. So, okay. Um, if we go up a little bit further, though, they talk about the collateral. So, uh, some big numbers right there. At November 30th, 2007, 2006, the fair value of securities received was collateral that we permitted. We were permitted to sell or repledge was approximately $798 billion and $621 billion, respectfully. The fair value of securities received as collateral that we sold or repledged was approximately $725 billion. Yeah, the one that's interesting to me is the next paragraph, where they also pledge their own assets primarily to collateralize certain financing arrangements, and they talk about that. Um, yeah. These pledged securities were the counterparty as a right by contract or custom to sell or repledge the financial instruments were approximately $63 billion and $43 billion. The carrying value of financial instruments and other inventory positions owned that have been pledged or otherwise encumbered to counterparties where those counterparties do not have the right to sell or repledge was approximately $87 billion and $75 billion. $87 billion in 2007 and $75 billion in 2006. Mm-hmm. Um. Let's see. Uh, can you go up a little bit? Yeah, go up a few pages for me. Just keep going up. Let's say keep going up further. A little bit more. Um, one more page up after this. Uh, yeah, this page. Hmm. Uh, yeah, see, I'm wondering if he's using the page numbers that are in the... Uh, 10k for the actual printing on it of the page so like that's page 106 above this one right here the this one here that uh -huh. is that says that it's 179 on a printout or something yeah this one here i think that's probably the first page that he looked at oh really yep so if we go keep going down until it says 112 at the bottom of the 10k thing because i bet that's what it is because that page definitely stood out as shocking what we saw there and that's the first time that we saw something that was that hard to believe so uh what page are you on there if you look at the bottom 112 112 okay so yeah okay let's look at that one that paragraph non-qspe so if you go down uh -huh. the next page this one yeah uh it says non-qspe activities yeah. yeah yeah this is definitely what he's using or these numbers i bet so um it, yeah i think that's definitely it we're just rolling with it. let's keep rolling, let's roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I definitely think that's it so what we saw before was the one that all the uh the real estate stuff was all um uh level two or level three with no, almost nothing in level one and this paragraph is very concerning the non-qspe activities if you read what it says because we have transactional activity with spes that do not meet the qspe criteria because they're permitted activities are not limited sufficiently or the assets are not qualifying financial instruments, uh, IG real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Real estate. These SPEs issue credit link notes, invest in real estate or are established for other structured finance, uh, financing transactions designed to meet clients investing 
or financing needs. Right. So, uh, and then let's go down about three pages to see if what 115 on the uh, numbered one here is, because that might be interesting. Yeah. So one more. Let's look at that. Okay. What does this say? So these are their borrowings, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you've got their long-term borrowings, you've got their uh, deposit liabilities at banks, and then you've got these short-term borrowings, right? So um, let's see what's interesting here. Um, okay. So what are the details? There? Okay. See your notes for long-term borrowings. Mm-hmm. What are you looking at? I was just reading the footnote uh, on uh, footnote three there. So um, they use quoted market prices for similar types of borrowing arrangements. The estimated fair value of our long-term borrowings was approximately $4.8 billion less than the carrying amount, whereas previously it had been $250 million more than the carrying amount. So I assume from what it's saying from that that uh, their, their senior notes had declined in value um, relative to par. But I don't know if that's what that note means, but it sounds like that's what it means. Um, yeah. So uh, – Let's see. So let's go. Um, yeah, all the let's keep going. Like to see if we can find one seventy three on this. You want to find one seventy three? Yeah. All right. Let's see. Maybe this maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe I'm wrong about these being the numbers, but could be. Let's see. Where are they? Stop numbering them. Yeah. That's all I was confused about. That's all I was like. Hmm, maybe he's using the top. Uh, the top one. Yeah, I don't know which uh, pages they are. Well, we already went over 173. Uh, let's see if we could hop to uh, 188. Okay. I mean, this isn't the worst thing in the world, right? I mean, this was a very confusing <laughs> 10K. <laughs> a lot of stuff. I mean, and we're just kind of like looking all over the place like, oh, does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, okay, this is 188. Securitization activity. Okay. Uh, interest in securitizations, investment grade, non-investment grade. Residential mortgages. So it goes from, yeah, so this is on residential mortgages. Okay. Um, effect of 20% adverse change. I don't know what that is. Let's see if we could, we securitize the following financial assets. So, yeah, so they securitized 100 uh, billion in residential mortgages and they had done 145 billion the year before. Um, I mean, maybe he's just looking at this, be like, this company just has so much leverage to real estate. Um, yeah, that could be true. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, there's something that stands out, right? So one of the ones that stand out, obviously, is that they have the, um, the weighted average credit loss assumption, right? So uh, they're, it's actually interesting, their weighted average credit loss assumption declined <laughs> from 2006 to 2007 on the um, investment grade stuff. Um, not by much, but by 0.1%, which by uh, 2007 is pretty surprising. I mean, just just keep, keep people you know, remembering this. The subprime mortgage market had already like blown up several months earlier. This is this balance sheet that we're looking at here is as of November 30th, 2007, right? I mean... Um, this is 2007. It had already been like um, slightly, but maybe beginning of the summer, slightly before the beginning of the summer, that that things were clearly going wrong with subprime. Um, so uh, I don't know exactly what's in their investment grade stuff, but you know, uh, I don't think that this was actually not subprime stuff. So it's interesting that the the credit um, uh, assumption declined there in terms of what the loss would be. Mm-hmm. But yeah. 
Let's see. 199. Okay. Commitments, contingencies, and guarantees. Lending-related commitments. Secure lending transactions, 122 billion. Contractual amount, 125 billion. Let's see, lending commitments. They define high yield exposures as securities of or loans to companies rated BB plus. We had commitments to high grade borrowers at November 30th, 2007 and 2006 of 24 billion. Net credit exposure of 12.2 billion. Hmm. We go down a little bit. Yeah, let's see what that says. Um, nope. Not seeing anything that's particularly interesting here. It's again on the mortgage commitments. Let's see. Through mm-hmm. our mortgage origination platform. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Let's go to on. 99 or that's where we just were let's go to 20 let's see 208 i think is what his handwriting says i wonder what what is this up here i don't even know what this is up here can you see what this stuff is can you read his handwriting can i read what it says yeah, yeah so there are other uh numbers there uh i don't know what that says yeah see 450 million 600 million can't ever read the guy's handwriting um Let's see, I'll pull it back over here. We are on 208. Okay. Um, so this is on their EPS, share-based employee incentive plans. Oh, this has got to be interesting. Let's see. At November 3rd, 2007, unrecognized compensation costs related to non-vested stock option and RSE awards totaled $2 billion. The cost of these non-vested awards is expected to be recognized over the next nine years over a weighted period of 3.8 years. Mm-hmm. Below is a description of a share-based employee incentive compensation plans. Okay. Um, so he didn't like something about their uh, employee incentive plans. I wonder okay. what it was. Oh, no. Uh, okay, let's go to 216. 216. Oops, sorry. All right. More notes. Define benefit plans. Okay. Uh... I'm not sure exactly what we're looking at here um, in terms of why this is that interesting. Um, it doesn't look that unusual to me what I'm looking at here, and it looks small compared to the size of their balance sheet and stuff. But. Mm-hmm. And the last one he had was 223. Okay. Let's see. Okay, so this is one. Uh, deferred tax asset and liability. Mm-hmm. No, I don't see anything interesting except for the repatriation issue that they've kept $4 billion in overseas that if tax would cost them a billion dollars. But other than that, I don't see anything that interesting. Huh. What do you think he was thinking when he was looking at Lehman Brothers? Like, and looking over this 10K? Um, I don't know. 
it, it's hard to say that they're being very um, that it's easy to understand what you're looking at or that they're being very candid about what they're saying. I mean, this page that you just went to is one that really stands out in that you have to really trust management. Um, this is like when we talk about Burford or something, you have to really trust management because as you can see, they're carrying, I mean, their biggest balance sheet item that you have there for the, um, on that uh, first table up there, the biggest single item is mortgage and asset backed securities at, um, 89 billion. And, um, the level one portion of that is nothing. Uh, so you know, a significant part is level two, we have to say. A significant part is level two. It's not like it's all level three. It's mostly level two. But um, that's obviously huge compared to like, I mean, if I remember what's the equity in this company this time it was like $22 billion or something. Uh-huh. So the mortgage-backed securities are four times that. The stuff that's level two is three times that. Just the level three stuff alone is even more than the entire equity in the company. So that's all really significant stuff. Um, you know, and you have to remember this is a very highly leveraged business. This is something that has... You know, the equity is um, 3% or less of the um, balance sheet. You know, when we compare this to things, like if I talk about a bank or something, we'll be talking about a bank like Frost or something, and I'll say that about 10% of the balance sheet is is shareholder equity. Here, it's about a third of that. And then in addition, that this is all funding that's provided by others, basically on the short-term funding, a lot of it, not all of it, there's some long-term debt, um, that is expected to be rolled over all the time versus things that are like deposits and stuff. So when we talk about banks as opposed to investment banks here and stuff, you know, 90% or something of their funding and, and for some banks of the ones that we talk about is provided by customers who are unlikely to pull the money as opposed to the things that we're looking at here. So it, it's, uh, even if they own the same assets as uh, other banks did and stuff, the funding sources aren't as stable. So it is a real, thing to keep in mind uh, that they need to continually have access to, to funding to when you have those kinds of leverage ratios that they did. Um, and that investment banks still do. And when you combine that in conjunction with their exposure to real estate and, you know, stuff like that, right. And off balance sheet arrangements, um, I could see how it could be, you know, scary to potentially invest in this company. It's not very candid 10 K. It's well, a lot of it is is on their judgment, like you said. It's well, not, not only level, that, it's not a level one. All the interesting parts are in the footnotes. The footnotes, right? I mean, if you look, uh, what we're really reading is the small print underneath these things to figure out what they mean. I mean, especially things like when we said the one, um, the things that don't qualify as, as um, uh, what would it be, QSPEs, um, just things like that are, you know. Um, those kinds of things are, are very concerning when you see that. Because we don't know what that, I mean, I don't know what that is if a company says something like that to me. If, if you look at some of those paragraphs, what that is. I mean, it, we know that this wasn't good stuff they had in there. But even if we didn't know that, the amount of discretion that, that's available to them to decide what they're doing and what they're reporting to you and everything is, there's a lot of room for moving things around um, in some of the stuff that they said. And there's a reason why they had to disclose some of the stuff that they did. So, uh, you know, it's just that it, it's, um, it's typical of the kind of 10 K that there's just no way that you can figure out what's going on and that you probably wouldn't be that excited to get involved with it unless you, unless you had really good feelings about management or something, but that doesn't come through in the 10 K in any way. 
uh, certainly. Mm-hmm. So you think like for Buffett, it was truly just like a, I have no idea how I could even like go about thinking what this is worth, you know, the risk associated to it. Like, do you think it was just for him? It was like when he talks about defining a 10 foot hurdle, this was just a freaking Mount Everest to to climb up. I think there's stuff that looks really bad here. And I mean, Wall Street saw this and knew and the stock was going down. It was in trouble and everything by this point. But some of the things that we said, I mean, the the amount that the balance sheet grew in one year, um, the amount the balance sheet grew in one year versus the equity that it it grew by at that same time. The fact that I think that there is stuff that they couldn't get rid of. um, So there was stuff that they would have liked to have sold through to other people and that wasn't moving. And I believe Um, their their need for capital, right, from the markets itself was part of Einhorn's uh, short pitch on this mm -hmm. company. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... That, that makes sense. But I mean, investment banks are very, um, they're, they're less able to hold some sort of, uh, I, I just think that they're, they're more fragile in some ways than other kinds of banks. And um, they do rely on having a lot of what's basically wholesale financing. What's, what's financing that is not provided by, in any sense, customers that you have. And so it's not very sticky and you have to constantly um, uh, have, you have to, people have to have confidence in you regularly. I mean, investment banks are subject to runs basically in a way that um, that banks are not anymore because of FDIC insurance and stuff like that. So that this that's what you see and that's how they can fail quickly. I mean, no, I... Yeah. What do you mean when you say that? Like runs how? Like just on general market movements? No, if people don't think that they're going to get their, uh, if people become concerned that they will not get paid um, in a few days, uh, they're going to want more collateral and things like that. And they're going to want to not leave money uh, with the firm. And the combination of those things is going to cause a significant amount of outflows um, in terms of their position for, and they'll need to come up with some way to fill that, um, to be able to keep their balance sheet the way that it is. Mm-hmm. So it's literally exactly like if people went to a bank, like what a run on a bank was, um, you know, 120 years ago or something where people line up outside the bank to get their money out. Uh, because even if they don't believe that it's not sound, they don't want to be the last one to get their money out. If everyone else believes that it isn't sound. Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, they also have a special thing here, of course, that they may have been dealing with other people, other firms who had some insight into these assets. And that was probably part of the problem, uh, that several of these firms held the same sorts of assets or dealt in the same sort of assets. And so they had an idea of, um, the risks involved with them. And that would be different than if you have the general public, which does not have a good idea of the sorts of risks that you're taking. Um, uh, and S-Bank is a lot less stable way of, of financing assets. So, mm-hmm. Got it. Let's uh, jump into the Focus Compound Daily that was sent out uh, today. If I could find my mouse. Um, okay. Go, go into that. Um, so somebody had emailed you. We get one of the most common questions we get asked, Jeff, is about valuing companies. And this was one that you actually wrote for a while ago that I had in my backlog. Um, sure. And somebody had emailed you asking about 
you know, how can I learn to value a business the way that you do if you use totally different approaches with every stock you analyze? And I think it's a good question. And I think the way you thought about it was good um, because, look, you're not going to value a bank the same way that you would value, value uh, you know, a, a dealership or a software company or, you know, maybe a capital test business or a conglomerate, right? So every, you know, way is different. So um, your answer was you don't need to know a stock's exact intrinsic value. You just need to need a common sense way to know when a stock's absurdly cheap or absurdly expensive. And I thought this was interesting because yesterday in the Omnicom focus compound day, when we talk about valuing that company, you just get, you gave a range of value, right? Mm -hmm. And you were talking about on the podcast, uh, it was actually Monday, uh, you were talking about on the podcast, how, you know, you don't know where the value is, but you think it's between, you know, $70 and whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you think it's at $70 and whatever, you're probably going to want to buy it a lot lower than $70. Uh, so I just thought it was an interesting way how you handicap that, but why do you value, you know, companies differently? I mean, I don't know if you've seen the focus compound daily, um, or if you have anything to comment on this. Yeah. But I thought it was a good one for people to take a look at. So check my Twitter at focus compound. He walks through the math. Yeah. So um, people ask these questions all the time, and it's one of the most common ones that I say, like, it's, it's just not that important to worry about it this way, which is how is the correct way of valuing it? You don't really need to know the correct way of valuing it. All you need to know is whether it's cheap or not. Um, and really, the not isn't that important. All you need to know, because you're generally just buying these things, um, is is it really cheap given some low assumptions? And so you can work backwards from that. So the example that I gave here is a, is a um, uh, car dealer which is trading at, it was trading at the time that I wrote this at about um, 40% of tangible book value. Uh, probably I would, if I had to guess in normal times would appraise a car dealer, maybe 1.2 times tangible book. They rarely go for less than one. So the assumption I made here, so maybe it's a third of what it might be in normal times. But the assumption that I made here is just, well, what if it gets to tangible book value? And so I said, okay, well, let's say you buy the stock today and it gets to tangible book value over a period of like um, 10 years or something, right? So you make that assumption and you assume they pay the dividend. Now, of course, they won't pay the dividend this year because of all the problems with that. But if you just say, OK, so it goes from where it is now to um, being for, so 0.4 times tangible book to one times tangible book over 10 years, plus it pays the dividend yield. At the time, the dividend yield was almost 10 percent. Um, if it did both of those things, you would get a 20 percent a year return in the stock. And that's assuming that it doesn't actually um, grow earnings. And also that it doesn't actually retain anything in earnings, which doesn't make any sense. Uh, so like if it, um, it's not going to pay 100% of earnings out as dividends. So what I, my point was is obviously you'll get some earnings beyond dividends. And um, we're already at 20% returns over 10 years, which is pretty good. So the stock's very cheap. I mean, um, anytime that you have something that says if it doesn't grow – and if it just piles up cash and you never see a benefit from that cash, you'll make 20% a year over 10 years. That's incredibly cheap. And that's just one way of looking at it, you know, and that's all that you need to know. You don't really need to worry that much about exactly what the, the proper price to book is. Um, you could see things like that in the past, you know, car dealers didn't generally sell for less than tangible book and stuff like that. Um, you know, another way of looking at it, of course, if it doesn't pay the dividend, but it does earn that amount, you, the math still works the same way. You then compound book value at, at almost 10% a year. So um, it just helps to have those things in your head. And you can often see these things very quickly. Like you just know 
that if something, just cause you've seen it so many times that if something goes from 40 cents on the dollar to a dollar in 10 years, the return is almost 10% a year. So that's why like buying very distressed debt and stuff works out fine. Um, it, it's not that important what the yield is on it. I mean, that helps too. But what's important is that if it actually will get back even over a very long period of time to being worth a um, dollar, uh, then you're going to have really good returns. And so you just, you can see that when it gets down to those numbers that are that low. Um, so in this case, right, if you know that it's trading at 40 cents on the dollar for tangible book value, all you really need to think about is, well, do car dealers ever go for less than tangible book value? Why would they and stuff? And and like this company, for instance, like a lot of car dealers had historically not really earned less than like 6% or something on tangible book really ever. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for it to trade at a big discount to tangible book. Um, so, I mean, that, that's just an example, but there's lots of examples like that. Uh, you could use the same example. I mean, if people ask about Omnicom, we could do all sorts of really elaborate guesses about Omnicom and stuff, right? But if the stock is trading at less than 10 times earnings and it pays everything out in buybacks and dividends, you're going to do better than 10% a year. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, you, the way you think about it, it's really from like a, for people that quote unquote like DCFs, it's really like from a reverse DCF type of perspective, I would say is the way that you think about it. Yeah. And you try to just take conservative numbers there. So like, for instance, do stocks usually take 10 years to get back to uh, a sort of fair multiple. No, I mean, I've never had that experience that it takes 10 years. The market reacts much faster than that. So, I mean, we can see years if we go back in the history of any company where they're pretty high multiples and pretty low in within 10 years, it, it doesn't take 10 years ever. Um, so you're taking a really long assumption that way. And then the other thing is you make here an absurd assumption, which is that they won't earn anything beyond their dividend, which just, you know, doesn't really make sense. Um, so you just, do things like that. And if you still get numbers that are, you know, above 10%, then it's very cheap. Um, so, I mean, those are the only things that you have to spot there. You don't really have to worry about if it was trading at 0 0.9 times tangible book, you can just pass. You don't have to pay attention to it. It's only because it's trading at 0 0.4 times tangible book and you think it's worth tangible book. Um, you know, mm -hmm. that, that it's that simple. Yeah. So for everybody listening, if you want to get access to that, it's on my Twitter at Focus Compound. And of course, you can get a Focus Compound daily in your email box uh, every day by signing up for free at FocusCompound.com. Uh, Jeff, this was our attempt to looking at Lehman Brothers. I appreciate you kind of coming on and uh, doing this in the spur of the moment. And I think it actually is a pretty good testament to um, even us looking at it and being like, I just have no idea, right? Because mm -hmm. I know for a fact you would never even look at it. So I think there's actually beauty in the <laughs> in us not being able to, uh, you know, figure it out. But um, I hope everyone has a great day. We will see you on Friday. The new podcast uh, schedule is Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then I'm filling in the other two days with my own videos on YouTube. I did a YouTube video yesterday going over uh, really how to stay organized as an investor if you don't have a Bloomberg, and just some stuff that I usually do you know from watch list building to keeping up with filings uh to blogs screens and all that sort of stuff um so definitely check that out on youtube i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in and jeff and i will be back with you on friday take care